From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. We'll get you caught up on another busy week, another eventful week as the state and the state's education system continues to respond to the coronavirus outbreak. It began on Monday with a little bit of uh, a little bit of clarity from the State Board of Education, but a lot of uncertainty still with the State Board of Education. We both listened. You wrote the story. Give us the rundown of what the board did and didn't do on Monday. Yeah, what the board did uh, is extend the soft closure, the closure of physical school buildings in Idaho through the end of the current school year, through the end of the current academic year. But at the same time in doing that, the state board created a giant caveat where it's going to give local school officials the opportunity to attempt to reopen this school year if they meet several conditions, Kevin. And the conditions have not been finalized. The conditions will be brought back to the next state board meeting on Monday, I want to say April 13th. But, but basically we have an idea of what the conditions might look like. And in order for schools to attempt to reopen, local social distancing guidelines would need to be met or lifted entirely. There, there would need to be a checklist that the state board's gonna approve that the local district would have to go through. And they would either have to meet with or get approval from local public health officials in their area to make that decision. And the governor basically followed up during a town hall meeting on Tuesday saying, you know, in these areas where we have community spread, I don't see them reopening for the year, but it comes back to local control and even pushing these decisions to local officials during the time of this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, what, what was your read on it, Kevin? What jumped out to you? Well, I think that nails it. And I think that was the departure that I heard when I listened to the state board on Monday, you know, back on March 23rd, when the state board started, uh, announced, ordered the, the four-week closure of schools, the idea that uh, the state board was pushing at that point was there were a lot of districts around the state that had already closed their doors, a lot of districts that were going into spring break, uh, extending spring break. For all practical purposes, most schools in the state were closed. The state board wanted to have some uniformity going forward and take the decision of reopening schools off of the plate uh, for schools, figuring, okay, school administrators have enough to deal with right now in terms of trying to continue education, move education to a remote model. Let's not have the local administrators have to worry about when and if they should reopen schools. So that was the the rationale yeah. back on March 23rd. So a very different approach coming from the state board this time around. Practically speaking, I don't know how this is gonna play out. I don't know if we're gonna see very many schools reopen between now and the end of the school year. As you mentioned, there are a lot of criteria that have to be set, uh, that have to be met. Uh, the community spread is an issue that uh, the governor is concerned about and as he said on Idaho Reports on Thursday night, there's community spread in a lot of locations around the state. So as a practical matter, I don't see a 
flood of schools reopening between now and June. And we already saw several school districts pretty much say right away, they're not, they have no plans to try to reopen. Yeah, you- uh, County, you... which has been the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, where trustees even last week had been talking about, well, let's not rule out reopening. Well, this week they did rule out reopening. When the state board came out with its new guidelines, uh, the superintendent and the chairman of the board issued a joint statement saying, we're closed for the rest of the year. It's all going to be remote learning for the rest of the academic year. Boise yeah. trustees uh, voted to do that on Thursday. Um, Twin Falls uh, put out a statement right after the state board's uh, decision on Monday saying, you know, we don't think we're going to meet the criteria to reopen. Uh, Twin Falls has a relatively high number of coronavirus confirmed cases. So you're already seeing some school districts saying, look, we're not going to reopen. It's it's not going to happen. Yeah, uh, we've got a couple school board meetings coming up early next week. But like you said, Blaine County announced they're closed through the end of the year. Boise, uh, I talked to Middleton, they're closed. And then they're one of those several districts in the Canyon County area where we do have community spread. I think it would be tough for the larger districts to reopen if they're even thinking along those lines. But Kevin, you talked to kind of a medium-sized district or at least exchanged messages with the superintendent from a medium-sized district in eastern Idaho who may want to try and give it a go this year. What'd you find out? Yeah, it would be Jeff Thomas, the superintendent in the Madison School District, which is based in Rexburg. And he said that he wants to see what the state board comes up with. You talked about the, the guidelines that we've not yet seen from the state board, uh, the direction that may come from the state board on Monday when they meet again. Uh, Thomas wants to see what the state board has to say because he's holding out hope. He's optimistic that there may be a way to reopen uh, schools in Rexburg this spring. He really wants to give seniors the closure that they deserve at the end of their uh, their school careers. He wants to get kids back in classrooms. He's saying, you know, online learning has its role, but really the best uh, learning environment is the classroom where you have face-to-face -face, uh, instruction with, with teachers and kids in the same room. So, you know, that's one school administrator who's holding out hope to reopen. And it's worth noting, you know, Madison County has, I believe, four or five confirmed coronavirus cases at this point. I don't have the numbers right in front of me. It's low compared to, you know, Blaine County, which, you know, is not that uh, different population-wise, probably a smaller population in Blaine County than, than Madison County that has more than 400 confirmed coronavirus cases. So Madison in terms of the confirmed cases, and that's a really imprecise measurement yeah. of what's really happening. In terms of the confirmed cases, uh, Madison County, relatively no low number of cases. So that may uh, factor into uh, Thomas's viewpoint and his hope of trying to reopen. Yeah, there are quite a few counties where the confirmed case numbers are are low to, uh, to non-existent. Sure. And we heard that from the state board on Monday. Uh, I'm actually one of the board members saying, you know, I think we have to be mindful of the fact that you have some counties, some communities uh, with no 
confirmed cases of coronavirus or very few cases of coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, um, she's right. Uh, I think the latest <laughs> numbers I looked at Thursday were Idaho has confirmed cases in, I want to say, 32 of the state's 44 counties. Yeah, you're but, right. But I also keep going back. And, and within those 32 counties, there are quite a few that are kind of like Madison County, yeah. Fremont County, where I'm actually from, that have you know, five or fewer cases. So low numbers of confirmed cases, even in some of the counties sure. that have confirmed cases. Sure. Uh, but I keep going back to what uh, I heard this from Dave Jeppesen, the director of health and welfare. I heard this from Christine Hahn, the state epidemiologist. I even heard this from the governor. They're concerned about the levels of testing and the number of confirmed cases uh, they think is underrepresenting the number of actual cases in these communities. And if you look at the data, yes, it's correct that there are low confirmed cases in Madison County, uh, but I'm not that sure about testing and how much testing is going on in Madison County. And we've seen some smaller communities have some short-term spikes uh, in the numbers from day to day where it looked like they had very few cases. And then uh, Nez Perce, County increased the number of cases. Twin Falls experienced a significant increase this week. And so I, I just have heard some real caution from health officials about, you know, not taking the confirmed cases numbers to the bank because they likely are greatly underestimating the number of actual cases in the community. And so I hope that the State Board of Education officials understand that. And I think that was one of the things. Uh, along with the state board's decision and the governor's guidance to consult with local public health officials because they're going to know much more about the situation in their area. And so I think that's why that caveat will be included in the reopening criteria. But I just would stress that a low number of confirmed cases does not necessarily reflect the number of actual cases. We've heard that time and again. And it reflects, again, the very limited testing that we see going on. Yeah. You know, I listened to Dave Jepson on Idaho reports on Thursday night, and he talked about we're getting right now about 500 test results a day. That's what we've been seeing this week. And Jepson suggested that that's pretty much the norm going forward that, you know, the state received a lot of test results the latter part of last week. And he described it as kind of a log jam a lot of test results coming in from the commercial labs, and they all kind of came in at once. So you had like 1,200, 1,400 test results coming in a day. He's saying the logjam has pretty much uh, been cleared, and now what you're seeing, this 500 you know, results a day, is kind of the normal. That's kind of the expected. Well, here we are sitting on Friday. On Thursday, the state reported about 100 new confirmed cases and the biggest increase in a five, week. And report about 500 new test results. So that's about a 20% positive rate. You know, that's cocktail napkin math, but you know, that you know, that's a reasonably high percentage of positive test results coming in. So, you know, you can understand the caution that uh, Governor Little is still expressing right now. He is saying Look, the, the overall case numbers, uh, the increase is slowing down. We're seeing some evidence of flattening the curve. But at the same time, he's saying, you know, look, we're going to have to do something 
next week. So we know that the governor is going to have to decide on what to do with his three-week uh, stay-home order. He is suggesting don't expect everything to go back to normal next week. Something will be in place. We have to have something in place. You know, we still have community spread in, in too many parts of the state. We do not want to go overboard, relaxing uh relaxing restrictions and then have a second wave of cases, have, have the numbers spike all over again. So you know something's going to come from the governor uh, the middle part of next week. We don't know what the state board is going to determine on Monday in terms of these guidelines that might allow schools to reopen. So a lot to watch next week. And, and I think uh, part of our job will be to sort of sort out how does all of this work? How does all of this interface? If you have criteria from the state board that would set the stage for reopening well under what circumstances would guidelines from the governor allow that or to what extent would guidelines from the governor uh supersede anything that's coming from his state board so yeah it's a very fluid situation that's a good point these decisions have really set up i almost look at it as this really delicate give and take between the governor, between the State Board of Education, and local school officials. And if you want to go back through the timeline here, you know, the governor originally, last month in March, declined, resisted efforts to issue a statewide order closing schools, even when he recommended social distance uh, and working from home and all those other things. Uh, the governor always resisted a statewide order to close schools and left it up to the local districts and the state board. And the state board, when it extended its indefinite, uh, or extended the closure through the end of the current academic year, said, oh yeah, we're going to give local districts this option. But where we're at right now with the isolation order, that would be set to expire next week on April 15th at 11.59 p.m., which is, I want to say, Wednesday night. You know, if that's extended across the state, an isolation order, I don't think that schools could reopen while that is in place. So it sets up this delicate balance, this delicate give and take of the decision-making levels between the governor, the state board, and uh, the local school districts. But that's kind of the latest. Uh, we still have the isolation order. We still have the order for physical school buildings to stay closed. And we expect more first on Monday the 13th from the state board developing the criteria to look at reopening. And then prior to Wednesday the 15th, we expect Governor Little uh, to announce uh, what he's going to do going forward. You're absolutely right. He said life will not go back to normal on April 16th. And I jumped on his telephone town hall meeting on Tuesday, and he said the advice that he's getting is really to get back to normal, we need to look at one, at least one or a combination of three things happening, and that's either a vaccine that's available to the public. And that's going to be a while. And that the governor said at least a year, uh, even with accelerated um, movement on that. But a vaccine, which well, could be a year or more away. Anytime soon. Uh, yeah, it won't be anytime soon. Second thing would be a good therapeutic uh, or a way to treat... Um, symptoms once you have it, or herd immunity and widespread testing. And we're not really close to either, to any of those three things, to either the vaccine, uh, a therapeutic, or 
herd immunity slash widespread instantaneous testing. We're not there, and I don't think we'll be there in, in two weeks, so it's an interesting decision for the governor. But I think people are starting to come to grips with, um, you know, although the number of new cases, the growth in new cases has slowed down in Idaho based on the data that's been published since last Thursday, I think people are starting to understand that, you know, until those three things or some combination of those three things the governor mentioned, we may have restrictions and guidelines and things in place for an extended period of time. And I think I used this example last week, but the governor has talked about September 11th and how the restrictions on travel and security that were put in place after September 11th, you know, some of those remain in place and life didn't go back to normal all at once then. It happened little by little and in phases and some of the restrictions we carried with us. And so the governor's, you know, I think I said this last week, but this isn't a case of you know, right now the spigot's off and at a date certain the spigot will be turned on full steam. That's not the world we live in, unfortunately. And so it's difficult to speculate how the governor will handle this. But I think that, um, you know, the expectation is that some sort of restrictions uh, will continue to be in place, perhaps for a, a longer period of time than we've seen thus far, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think what you heard this week with the state board is a lot more of a nuanced. I don't, I don't want to say disagreement. I think it's a lot more of a nuanced uh, discussion about restrictions and trying to roll back restrictions. I mean, nobody on the state board is pulling an Ammon Bundy here or a Heather sure. Scott. You know, nobody is saying you know. Let's just blow up these restrictions. They're unconstitutional. They're they're an affront on civil liberties, as some as some conservatives have been starting to do. What you have with the state board is a, a lot more nuanced discussion of well, do we need to close schools, every school in the state, for the rest of the academic year, yeah. or do we want to at least hold out the option if we get a few weeks down the road under certain conditions, could some schools, if they choose to, uh, reopen. So it's, it's much more, uh, it's much less confrontational. Yeah. It's much less adversarial, but it gives you a sense that at least on the state board, there is a, you know, there's some question about, well, when do we get back to a point where we can start to reopen some things, i.e. Uh, public schools. So, and, a lot to watch for for next week. And it you know, seems we'll, like we'll get the guidelines from the state board. We'll get the new directive from the governor, and we'll try to figure out how it all meshes together. Yeah, and it seemed like there was kind of, you know, there was the people that are looking at the data real closely on the state board versus the people that were pushing for local control. And I just, I, I, I know people really the data want. Is so spotty, though. That's the thing that jumped out at me as I listened to it on Monday. Uh, having just written a story about the testing data. Yes, the test results, uh, yes, the, the case numbers over the past few days have tapered off somewhat. There's no question when you look at the number of new cases, we were spiking 200 new cases a week ago Thursday. Yeah, We haven't been close to that figure any 
single day since then. And we've had a number of days where the new cases have been in the double digits as opposed to the triple digits. Yeah, That's certainly an encouraging sign relative to where we were a week ago when we were, when we were recording a podcast. But that's only a few days, and it's based on very limited test data. And I say it every week, I think, that I know only enough about statistics to be dangerous. But from my limited uh, knowledge of statistics, we really don't know very much. Well, we only know a few weeks worth of, of results based on very limited data and a couple of encouraging days of of numbers. Yes, it's encouraging. We all want to see the curve flatten. There's nobody in the room who doesn't want to see that happen. And there's nobody in their heart of hearts who isn't rooting for it. But you can't look at stats with a rooting interest. You, you no. have to look at statistics as dispassionately and as objectively as you can. So just... To my way of looking at it, we don't know that much. I, I don't think we know that much. And when you talked about the positive testing rate, you know, it sounds like we're doing 500 tests a day in Idaho. If we were doing 5,000 tests a day in Idaho, our, our understanding of this might be really different. And so we're not at that point. But I also hope... And, we are trying, and there is a lot of movement now to ramp up those tests. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Alquist has announced a plan where he's going to try to... Uh, you know, bankroll some additional testing and, and get that rolling. There's talk now about doing some tests for antibodies, and there's actually yeah. going to be a pilot program going on in Blaine County. What the right. antibodies tell you is not if somebody has an active case, but it shows whether somebody has has had the virus yeah. and maybe had it in an asymptomatic way and has developed some immunity. It gives you a chance to kind of map back and say, okay, we have these many confirmed cases that are active, but we also have these many folks in Blaine County or Ada County who evidently had the, had the virus at some point and got over it, or they had it asymptomatically and never knew they had it, yeah. but have shown some, you know, the antibodies show that they've had to fight the virus at some level, and they have some level of immunity uh, and some level of reduced risk of reinfection. Yeah. So we're trying to find out more. The state's trying to find out more. The private sector is trying to find out more. We need to find out more. And I think keep the context in mind, too. You know, schools have been closed since, oh, I think it was, I, I can't remember the exact date, but uh, the last three weeks, physical school buildings. They really started rolling out the closures in mid-March. Yeah. And so we're really, I know people want to get back to normal and preserve these graduations and traditions and calm people down and get our economy going and return to normal. But let's keep in mind the context of, are we fighting you know, to get back, to have kids back in the classroom here at the very end of the school year for maybe the last two weeks uh, versus risking another spike in cases? Kids have already gone home. Districts are already gearing up with distance learning and online learning. That's really going to ramp up next week. Uh, this disruption is already significant. Um, and just what are you pushing for to get kids back in for the last three weeks and risk another spike? I, I, I don't know. A lot, a lot to think about when we make this decision, but we'll have more and guidance the, on Monday. And in the, and in the lifespan of this outbreak and in kind of the, the arc of a coronavirus case, this really has not been going on that long. No. I mean, we talked about mid-March was when the, the public schools started to close, uh, you know, extending spring break. Second week of March. That's less, less than a month ago. Yeah. For a virus that 
you know, people can carry for several days, maybe a couple of weeks before they start to uh, show symptoms, those who do show symptoms. And uh, you know, a virus that sometimes takes, you know, quite a lot of time to get over, you know, we're talking about less than a month. I know it feels like it's, you know, a whole lot longer time. We joke about, you know, the hundred days of March that we all went through. Really, it's it's been a very short period of time and a very limited window where, you know, state health officials, local health officials, and local school officials have been trying to figure out what's going on with this virus. It, it's just, you know, it's not been something we've been dealing with for a year. It just maybe feels that way. Yeah. If you want to get caught up from all of our coverage, uh, the home place, IdahoEdNews.org, is the best place to be. Uh, we have the state board decisions. We have the governor's town hall meetings. We have reactions from local school districts. We have feature stories about how districts are gearing up for online learning, about how they're identifying students who are in need of devices or in need of internet connectivity. Uh, our Eastern Idaho reporter, Devin Bodkin, has kind of chronicled his own family's efforts yeah. at homeschooling. And Devin was a professional K-12 educator um, before he joined Idaho Ed News. He's a certified credentialed public school teacher. And so that's he's, fascinating. He's better prepared to be a teacher all of a sudden than most people. But, oh, yeah. hundred percent. Uh, so the homepage is the place to get caught up. You had a big story, though, Kevin, that I want to get to on Thursday. It came out of the first half of Monday's state board meeting, and then you added some analysis. But it's looking at the higher education side of things and the impact that the coronavirus pandemic is having on higher ed. And this was a fascinating, concerning piece, Kevin, Um you called it an existential crisis for our higher education community, and you documented a lot of uncertainty from Idaho's college and university presidents, didn't you? The college administrators are really nervous at this point, and you heard it in the state board meeting, and I've, I've heard it, and I've gathered it, and it's not unique to Idaho, but what it really kind of comes down to is there are two reasons that... Uh, you know, there are two challenges right now that are facing the higher education system. Right now, you've got the short-term financial impacts of the coronavirus, and those are myriad impacts that you're seeing. I mean, you're having colleges and universities having to figure out how to get computers and laptops into the hands of staff or students so that they can segue into online learning, or you know, the College of Eastern Idaho is setting up a, a hotspot in a parking lot so that people can, so that students can do their work and, and log on. You've got the added cost of cleaning and sanitizing uh, buildings that right now are empty. And, you know, you have, you're, you're refunding room and board for students who had to move back home, all kinds of expenses. And it varies from school to school. And some schools really haven't been able to give me a, a sense of how much of an impact it's had, but Lewis Clark State College provided me some numbers. They estimate that between you know, refunding room and board, canceling events like the NAIA baseball tournament that they've hosted for 20 consecutive years, they're figuring that it's about $2 million immediate budget hit for a college that has about a $37 million annual budget. So we're not talking about small change. I mean, that's about a 5% hit. So if that's happening across the board, more or less for all of the institutions. That's significant. And that's happening right now. And it's happening as the the colleges and universities are having to further cut spending because of the uh, the budget holdbacks 
that were announced a couple of weeks ago. So that's the short term. Yeah. And that's you know, pretty serious right there. But long term, I don't think anybody in the higher education community knows what to expect with students arriving or returning next fall. And that is, yeah, that is a big chunk of the budget. You know, it's students showing up, paying tuition, paying room and board. Uh, nobody really knows what to expect. Um, we heard from Marlene Trump at Boise State University. And Boise State's been growing like, like crazy the past few years. It, she said, we don't know what to expect. And I'm telling my financial folks to brace for a significant drop-off. Uh, and how do we budget if we have a significant drop-off? She doesn't know what to expect. And, you know, you know, like I said, Boise State had been smashing its own records in enrollment year in and year out for several years. Uh, but she doesn't know whether they can reopen this fall. And if they reopen, what kind of class sizes can you do? I mean, if you sell social distancing or restrictions on large gatherings, well, can you have a lecture with 50 students or 100 students or 300 students? I and mean, what can you do? And she's not alone. Basically, all of the presidents are saying they can't predict enrollment. And they usually have a better idea in May and heading into the summer right now, they, they just have no clue and no clue of when they're going to have a, an estimate of, of what to expect. So, you know, I call it an, an existential crisis because colleges and universities in Idaho derive almost half of their budget from tuition and fees. It's a pretty even split right now between state funding and tuition and fees. Yeah, you've talked about the shift over the last couple of decades. It's yeah, been fascinating. Yeah, the shift has been going on for 40 years, and that's been a public policy decision from the legislature, a very conscious decision by the legislature year after year. So, you know, it's not just about fulfilling the mission of educating students, which is obviously what colleges and universities are all about, but it's also about, you know, you know paying the budget, <laughs> paying the bill. You, you need students coming in the doors to pay the bill. Um, but right now there is no really clear sense of what happened, what's going to happen with students, how many students are going to show up. You know, it, it's, and it's strange because we've written about this before when there is a downturn and we're definitely heading into one right now, how long, how deep don't know, but we're definitely in a downturn. Usually a downturn results in an increase in enrollment in higher education because, you know, adults decide, well, I'm out of work or I'm worried I'm going to lose my job. May as well go back and finish that degree. Yeah. You know, take out loans, do whatever I got to do, you know, get the degree, get ready for when the workforce is, uh, is looking better and just have, you know, some new skills or some enhanced skills to take into the labor market or your, you know, high school graduates say, well, there's no work for me right out of high school. So yeah, I'll go to college and start to you know, earn some credits and see where that goes. So that's usually what happens. And it's usually pretty predictable. Downturn leads to an increase in enrollment, but downturn when everybody's being told to stay home and you don't know how long you're supposed to stay home. And you know, you know nobody really knows. So that's why I, I wrote about it and just try to get a, you know, kind of send the signal that this is something that as you heard at the state board meeting on Monday, university presidents are extremely nervous and have really no read on what's going to happen here in the next few months. Well, it's a good piece, and I think it really sets up what's going to be an area that we look at 
and that will affect education going forward for years to come. And so I think it really sets this up and sets the stake up. Um, you know, obviously K-12 has its situation and its struggles, um, but let's not overlook higher education. And so I think right. you've really set this up. But if you talk about, you know, the short-term financial hardships and impacts versus the long-term uncertainty, it, it totally makes sense if you put yourself in the shoes of a family with a 17 or an 18 year old student trying to make this decision about going away to college. It's a, it's a big decision. It's a, a financial undertaking. It's a big move. It's a big step in your life. But, you know, I don't feel like at this point I could make big plans or a big decision for August, um, yeah. like a trip or anything like that. So I can totally I relate to how... And nothing as important as deciding whether to attend college. Right. So I can totally understand how young people and their families are not able to make that decision right now. I don't know what I'm going to be able to do in August, what I'm going to be allowed to do in August. Um, so I totally understand how that would be a heightened choice given the financial implications, given the public health safety considerations, given the disruption in your life. Um I, I couldn't make that decision today. I, I can't make even a much less significant decision today about what I'll be doing in August. So I totally relate and I totally understand how this will make it difficult for our colleges and universities and throw in a third concern, you know, right heading into this crisis. It's not like they had steadfast support from the Idaho legislature. Hey, guys, no matter what, we've got your back. That is not the case. We talked about how the Idaho House killed two consecutive higher ed budgets through a fit about diversity and inclusivity programming. Um, and that was the way things left off uh, at the legislature. Some of the very final things that were done. Yes, they ended up passing a higher education budget. But one of the very last things they did was this big divisive fight about how upset the house was with higher education. So those are the terms uh, that they left town. And over a budget that uh, had, I think, a 0.3% increase in general fund. So that's the political environment so from the legislature. Exactly, yeah. you know, so it's not yeah, like Dr. Marlene Trump can say, well, things are uncertain, but I at least know that I can depend on the Idaho legislature. No, that's not the case at all. And, you know, Cynthia Pemberton, I didn't get into this in the story, but she had a really interesting point in the state board meeting and, and said, you know, her concern is, you know, we don't know under these circumstances what we will be able to do or not be able to do uh, for the state of Idaho, for the economy of Idaho. Because, you know, again, going back to what happens in a downturn, people wanting to go and enhance their job skills, learn some new skills, uh, prepare for, uh, you know, an economy that, uh, is going to rebound at some point and be ready for that, uh, be ready to jump in when the labor market improves. You know, that's a big part of the mission of higher education and its economic mission. She's saying, you know, at this point, how much will we be able to help and how much will we be able to do? We'll do our best, but, you know, there may be limits to what we can take on. Yeah. It's uh, a, a lot of uncertainty. And I think we're just beginning to understand the situation of what the stakes are with 
our K-12 public school system, our higher education system, our economy and state revenues, which will affect both um, in greater degrees moving forward. So we're just starting to understand perhaps some of the stakes and look at some of the things that could be affected. And I know we're having a lot of meetings about how we're going to shape our coverage and the things that we're going to watch moving forward. But those two stories and this week's coverage kind of really set up where we're going to go. Those are the two main things I wanted to get to. Kevin, I know you're almost double booked and have another appearance coming up on Boise State Public Radio today. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share uh, before we say our goodbyes today? No, but I think that's a good way to leave it because, um, you know, I think like like we're all maybe feeling uh, maybe the realization that this is going to be a long struggle uh, from a public health standpoint. It's going to be a long uh, process in terms of how our lives get back to normal. The same kind of yeah, you know, the, the same kind of thing exists here with education and with the economy. It's going to be a long struggle to figure out what education looks like on the other side of this, you know, K-12 and higher education, and when that starts to get back to normal. And when does the economy uh, that had been growing you know, at a pretty good clip here in Idaho, when does that economy start to rebound? You know, when does the, the, the trough when do we hit the trough and when do we start to turn around? And, and all of that obviously ties into the, the public health aspect of this outbreak. You know, it's it's going to be a long process and it's going to be a long story for us to to tell, but we will we'll keep doing it and we'll keep uh, covering as many aspects of this as possible. And um, we can certainly use your help. Uh, if you have questions, if you have story ideas, uh, let us know, email us, uh, you know, get in touch with us. Uh, you can get in touch with us over our website. We have an Ask Us Anything uh, widget on the front page of the uh, of the website where you can submit your questions. We're getting a lot of them, and we're trying to answer as many of them as we can. And uh, people are asking us anything, as you might, yeah. <laughs> as you and, might and, expect. You know, we're, we're, Not we're limited to, to education. Can, so just, uh, just keep them coming. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much. We always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this complicated issue, intersection of education policy and education politics. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.